Welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 12, O Ye Fair Ones. So, buckle up. These chapters are very, very heavy. Um, We get a summary of the life of Mormon, and the summary starts out with him quite young. Oh, and this is Mormon chapter 1 through 6. So when Mormon was 10 years old, Amaron, who was keeping the records at the time, had just hid the records and came to Mormon. He said, And about the time that Amaron hid up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about 10 years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amaron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child, and art quick to observe. Therefore, when ye are about twenty and four years old, I would that ye should remember these things that ye have observed concerning this people. And when ye are of that age, go to the land of, land of Antum, unto a hill which shall be called Shim. And there I have deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. And behold, ye shall take the plates of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder shall ye leave in the place where they are, and ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have observed concerning this people." I want you to think of a 10-year-old that you know. (laughs) I'm thinking of a few, and I am just trying to picture this. And oh boy. But think about what kind of boy he must have been. I wonder how he felt. And it also makes me think that maybe I'm underestimating my kids. (laughs) So when he's 11, he's taken by his father to Zarahemla, He tells us that there are tons of people covering the land and there begins to be war between the Nephites and the Lamanites. He talks about a war where the Nephites beat the Lamanites and and then there's peace for about four years. But even though there's peace, the Lord removes the disciples because of the wickedness of the people. It says in chapter 1, verse 14, And there were no gifts from the Lord, and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. And I, being fifteen years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. And I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut, and I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. For behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God, and the beloved disciples were taken away out of the land because of their iniquity." But I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts, and because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. What does it mean to willfully rebel? I looked up the definition of willfully, and it said, with a stubborn and determined intention to do as one wants, regardless of the consequences. And I looked up the definition of rebel. It says, rise in opposition or armed resistance to an established government or ruler. So if we were to combine those two definitions, we come up with rise in opposition and resistance against God with a stubborn determination to do as one wants regardless of the consequences. And you can't willfully rebel against something unless you know what you are rebelling against. So they knew God, they knew his commandments, and they decided that they wanted to do as they want anyway. When applying this to a situation in my own life, the first thing that I thought of is the media and the shows that I like to watch. I always know when I'm watching something that I shouldn't. I know exactly what it feels like to be watching something that is offending the spirit, and I'm sure that you do too. When I choose to ignore that, 
I am in a situation where I am willfully rebelling against God because I know that those feelings that are telling me that this is offending the spirit come from the Holy Ghost. And I'm choosing by continuing to watch and continuing to pursue that, sh- that show, I'm choosing to ignore those promptings because my natural man is enjoying the show and wants to keep watching it. So imagine like the Nephites, you are rebelling in all aspects of your life. That means that you know what is right. You know what God God's commandments are, and you have some sort of belief that he is real and there, and you choose to ignore all of that because you are allowing your natural man to override it. So as we think of what willfully rebelling is, I want to move on to the next part of Mormon's story. He ends the first chapter by saying in chapter in verse 19, and it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even to the fulfilling of all of the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite. And that made me think about all of the prophecies that we have for our day. All the things that we are told will happen, will happen. When Mormon was 16, he was asked to be the head of the Nephite army, which is just craziness. He must have been an incredibly impressive 16-year-old. Lots of battling happens and the Nephites aren't doing well, and they start to be really, really sad because of all the hard things in their life. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, And it came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. But behold, my joy was in vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. And it came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again, and I saw the gr- that the day of grace had passed with them, both temporally and spiritually, for I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against God and heaped up as dung on the face of the land. So do we ever ask or expect the Lord to give us happiness in sin? I can remember times when I have asked the Lord to help me feel fulfilled in motherhood and help me feel happy. All the while, I was not reading my scriptures. I was wasting far too much time on media of one kind or another, mostly because it's a good temporary escape for any negative feelings that I might have been feeling. I was not praying as sincerely or as often as I should. I was not attending the the temple regularly. I wasn't being a good visiting teacher, and the list goes on. And I think we all go through spurts of where we're doing better and worse, But during those times when I was behaving that way and asking the Lord to make me feel fulfilled and happy, I wasn't putting forth any kind of effort to do these small things. I was just coasting along. You see how silly that sounds? That I am not putting forth any kind of effort to do those things and asking him to help me feel happy and fulfilled? I knew the things that I should be doing, and I wasn't doing them. 
So how could I expect the Lord to give me happiness in my sin? I'm not trying to imply that we need to be perfect for the Lord to help us and to bless us, but there does need to be adequate effort. And that effort might be different for different people. For someone struggling with depression, that might be some really minimal things. But I think that we all know when we're not doing what we could. And in those times that I'm thinking of for myself, I was not doing what I could and I knew it and the Lord also knew it. So ask yourself in two steps. One, tell yourself always that you are valuable and loved. But second, ask yourself if you are in an upward trajectory. Are you doing what you can? Are you improving? Heber J. Grant said, there is no such thing as standing still in the church of God. If we are not moving forward with our testimony and the actions that need to follow that testimony, we are moving backwards. In 3 Nephi chapter 13, verse 24, Christ tells us, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. I asked myself, when am I trying to serve two masters? And I think it's when I believe one thing, but I am willfully rebelling in one way or another. And by that, I don't mean that I don't make mistakes, which that will always happen, whether I'm in a rebellious life state or not. But I think it's about my heart. When I am willfully making a different choice than I know I should. It makes me think about when I get involved in gossip. I always know when I should stop talking. And I think some sometimes things just slip out and I catch myself in my head and the spirit immediately reminds me. And a lot of times I do stop. I'm getting a lot better at it as I get older. But sometimes it just feels like I can't stop something from coming out. There's some kind of emotion driving me to want that more in the moment than to listen to the spirit. And I think a lot of us know that feeling, but even though it just feels like I can't quite stop it, I can, and I should, because I have agency. These examples I've given of my own life and struggles are instances where I can relate to willfully rebelling against God, but they are not my life as a whole, like the Nephites. And they are things that I've repented of and will continue to repent of as I strive to get better and better. One of my very most favorite talks is by Michelle D. Craig called Divine Discontent. And it's an amazing talk and you should all go listen to it. She says, these prophetic calls to action, coupled with our innate sense that we can do and be more, sometimes create within us what Neil A. Maxwell called Divine Discontent. Divine discontent comes when we compare what we are to what we have the power to become. Each of us, if we are honest, feels a gap between where and who we are and where and who we want to become. We yearn for greater greater personal capacity. We have these feelings because we are daughters and sons of God, born with the light of Christ, yet living in a fallen world. These feelings are God-given and create an urgency to act. We should welcome feelings of divine discontent that call us to a higher higher way while recognizing and avoiding Satan's counterfeit, paralyzing discouragement. This is a precious space into which Satan is all too eager to jump. 
we can choose to walk the higher path that leads us to seek for God and his peace and grace, or we can listen to Satan, who bombards us with messages that we will never be enough, rich enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, anything enough. Our discontent can become divine or destructive. I always tell my oldest daughter, are you feeling divine discontent or destructive discontent? But back to who we were talking about, the Nephites. They are at a place that, quote, their sorrowing, sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but rather it was the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits. But they go to battle and are able to overcome the Lamanites for the time being. They gain some of their land back and they have relative peace for about 10 years. But Mormon describes that victory like this. And it came to pass that when they had fled, we did pursue them with our armies and we did meet them again and did beat them. Nevertheless, the strength of the Lord was not with us. Yea, we were left to ourselves that the spirit of the Lord did not abide in us. Therefore, we had become weak like unto our brethren. In what ways are you ensuring the strength of the Lord is with you as you try to do hard things? For me, it's um, a struggle of mine. It's hard to be on top of living a really intentional life. It's hard for me to approach my day in a way that will be effective and be efficient and do the little things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. As I've been frustrated with myself in this regard, a phrase that consistently comes to my mind from the Spirit is, put him first. And when I follow that counsel, I really feel the strength of the Lord mag magnifying my capabilities. I feel far more able to get things done that I feel should be done, and I feel satisfied by it. The more that I put him first, the more strength I feel added to me. The Bible dictionary tells us this about grace. Through faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ and repentance of their sins, they receive strength and assistance to do good works that they otherwise would not be able to maintain if left to their own measures. This grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to lay ho hold on eternal life and exaltation after they have expended their own best efforts. So to continue on with our story, after 10 years, Mormon is commanded to cry repentance unto the people. If you remember from before, he was forbidden from preaching to them, but it seems like the Lord is giving them one last chance. They then have a few years of battle with the Lamanites and they win and start to boast in their own strength. Oh, and I forgot to say Mormon's preaching was not successful. So as they're boasting in their own strength, they begin to swear vengeance against the Lamanites upon the throne of God and the heavens. And this is where, when Mormon says, and it came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. Behold, I had led them, notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle, and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. After that, he then speaks directly to us the house of Israel. And these things doth the Spirit manifest unto me. Therefore I write unto you all, 
And for this cause I write unto you, that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, yea, every soul who belongs to the whole human family of Adam. Ye must stand to be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. And also that ye may believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which ye shall have among you, and also that the Jews, the covenant people of the Lord, shall have other witnesses beside him, whom they saw and heard that Jesus whom they slew was the very Christ and the very God. And I would that I would persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We have been taught to prepare for thousands of years. We have been told to prepare. I was reminded when I read that of Elder Bednar's talk this past conference. And in this quote, he's talking more specifically about emergency preparedness. But I want you to think about the all of the ways that we've been told to prepare. Some church members opine that the emergency plans and supplies, food storage, and 72-hour kits must not be important anymore because the brethren have not spoken recently and extensively about these and related topics in general conference. But repeated admonitions to prepare have been proclaimed by leaders of the church for decades. The consistency of prophetic counsel over time creates a powerful concert of clarity and a warning volume far louder than solo performances can ever produce. He's very clearly pointing out there that the Lord has given us a powerful message through all the, all the thousands of years of scripture we have and our modern day prophets and apostles that now is the time to prepare. None of us know when our mortal time here on earth will end, and we've been given ample direction and warning to prepare. And whenever it does come time for the Savior to come again, do you think that the prophet is going to come out and say, okay, guys, the Savior will return in six months. Make sure you repent. No, we have been given ample warning and signs, and it is our job to know them and watch for them. Because like Elder Bednar says, The consistency of prophetic counsel over time creates a powerful concert of clarity and a warning volume far louder than solo performances can ever produce. I don't think any of us will be able to tell the Lord that we didn't know that we should prepare. So continuing on, war and carnage continue. And it's painful to read Mormon's words as he clearly struggles to want to describe the awful scene before him. He says, and it is impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of blood and carnage, which was among the people. And then in the next chapter, after he has agreed once more to lead their army, even though he had no hope because of, he knew that the judgments of the Lord were upon them. He says, And now behold, I, Mormon, do not desire to harrow up the souls of men in casting before them such an awful scene of blood and carnage as was laid before mine eyes. But I, knowing that these things must surely be made known, that all things which are hid must be revealed upon the housetops, and also that a knowledge of these things must come unto the remnant of these people, and also unto the Gentiles, whom the Lord has said should scatter this people, and this people should be counted as not among them. Therefore I will write... 
I write a small abridgment, daring not to give a full account of the things which I have seen because of the commandment which I have received, and also that ye may not have too great sorrow because of the wickedness of this people. For I know that such will sorrow for the calamity of the house of the house of Israel. Yea, they will sorrow for the destruction of this people. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. He continues on telling us of things to come and what will happen to the remnants of the Lamanites. And he ends the chapter like this. And then, O ye Gentiles, how can ye stand before the power of God, except ye shall repent and turn from your evil ways? Know ye not that ye are in the hands of God? Know ye not that he hath all power, and at his great command the earth shall be rolled together as a, as, as a scroll? Therefore repent ye, and humble yourselves before him, lest he shall come out in justice against you lest a, re- a remnant of the seed of Jacob shall go forth among you as a lion and tear you to pieces, and there is none to deliver. He then describes the awful, great, and last battle of the Nephites. And they're all destroyed except for 24 of them, including his son Moroni. And I'm going to end with the beautiful and loving and yet completely heartbreaking soliloquy that Mormon gives us. You can feel his devastation and his deep, deep sadness for his people. As I read this, it reminds me of how we should feel about the people who live in the world today. Mormon was filled with love for these people, and we should be filled with love for our people, loving them because God loves them. And we should desire that we do everything we can to ensure that we are doing our part in the gathering of Israel. Because as President Nelson said in April 2019 General Conference, time is running out. Mormon says, after the great destruction of his people, And my soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people. And I cried, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. And the day soon cometh that your mortal must put on immortality, and these bodies which are now moldering in corruption must soon become incorruptible bodies. And then ye must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, to be judged according to your works. And if it so be that ye are righteous, then ye are blessed with your fathers who have gone before you. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. But behold, ye are gone. And the Father, yea, the eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state, and he doeth with you according to his justice and mercy. I say these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. I hope you felt the Spirit. I hope that you are filled with some divine discontent and excitement that you can. we have the potential to be better. I'd love to encourage you to share this with anyone you feel prompted to, and I'll talk to you again next week.